The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The entire business model has been changed. Streaming, digital, AI. We are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing. So when we get started seeing uh, interest rates going up last year, a lot of people thought, oh, that means housing prices are going to go down. And that's just not happening. I mean, prices, they're almost back to record highs. I keep thinking you were zigging when others were zagging. Are you now trying to do the same? Well, the second quarter really was led by the big tech, but we think the third quarter is going to be led by more what you call cyclical value. And this would be the banks, diversified financials, industrials, basic materials. They should give you a nice outperformance pop in the third quarter. And I think oil is a great big geopolitical risk in 2024. Russia has a lot of incentives to reduce production and drive the price back up. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. It was a mixed week for the major indexes with the Dow Industrials playing catch-up. As the Dow Industrials soared this week while there was a big sell-off in the Nasdaq on Thursday. There's a subtle rotation taking place in the stock market as utilities, healthcare, and along with energy move to the forefront. Right now, there are no signs that an approaching recession is imminent, although there are signs the economy is slowing down. The big question going forward is what will second quarter earnings look like and what are corporate CEOs saying about the prospects for the remainder of the year? There's also the possibility of a pickup on inflation towards the end of the year. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, Bruce Frazier from Stock Charts joins me. Bruce sees a rotation taking place as institutions lighten up on tech holdings, while other sectors of the market are playing catch-up, from healthcare to utilities and energy. Bruce sees a pickup in inflation coming in the second half of this year. And following Bruce, Danielle DiMartino Booth joins me. Danielle points out major fiscal spending is keeping this economy afloat, while collateral backing commercial real estate loans is deteriorating. She expects the Fed to hold rates firm as inflation picks up again. And finally, Chris Paplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's find out the major stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Paplava. Last week marked beginning of earnings season, and while news picked up this week related to earnings, most of the key reports are scheduled to be released in the coming weeks. Earnings played a central role in driving the market this week, particularly in healthcare and the financial sectors, where positive reports lifted stock prices. However, the tech, discretionary, and communications sectors experienced some profit-taking as investors reacted to earnings announcements and a warning from Taiwan Semiconductor given the sector's remarkable performance in recent months. While there were a few other economic reports discussed, their impact on trading appeared limited, except for the housing sector, which drew some attention. Apologies in advance on a longer wrap-up this week, as there's always a lot to cover during earnings season. 
So let's talk about telecom first. JP Morgan lowered its rating to neutral last Friday, and Citigroup downgraded AT&T to neutral from buy Monday in the wake of concerns about potential liabilities related to the industry's use of lead sheath cables underground, reported in some Wall Street articles last week. The article states that two companies have done little to remove toxic lead cables underground. AT&T and Verizon both traded four times their daily volume on Monday on the downgrade. AT&T hit a 30-year low and was down nine consecutive days. The communications service sector was the lowest performer this week on that news and some profit-taking in large-cap growth names later in the week. In the financials, Bank of America, Charles Schwab, Morgan Stanley stocks were up following their earnings reports. Later in the week, Northern Trust, M&T Bank, Western Alliance, and U.S. Bancorp were also higher after reported earnings. And despite missing earnings estimates, Goldman Sachs rose post their report. American Express, however, was down Friday on earnings on lowered revenues expectations and an increase in provisions for credit losses. Overall, uh, we saw technically a breakout in bank stocks and regional banks off their uh, annual lows and improving there. On the opposite side of the performance coin this week, healthcare was the top performer with more positive news this week coming from Johnson & Johnson and Abbott Labs earnings reports following positive responses to United Health's earnings last week. Many other large cap healthcare companies rallied in unison on these earnings reports, possibly as a rotation into defensive stocks ahead of a number of tech releases coming next week, as well as on earnings. The Dow Industrial Average has been a big winner of late, locking in its ninth consecutive gain on Friday because of earnings and the rotation being seen out of large cap growth and tech names into other areas. The overhangs this week were due to Tesla and Netflix earnings reports, in addition to cautionary remarks from Taiwan Semiconductor. Tesla was down 7.3% post earnings with concerns focused on margins. With the stock up over 140% this year and a one-year forward uh, price to earnings multiple of 60 times, it may be priced for perfection. The focus for the company has been on volume and not profitability, as Elon's long game is focused on the development of his supercomputer dojo. The company plans to spend about a billion by the end of 2024 on its development, which is accumulating massive amounts of video data from Tesla vehicles to power Tesla's full self-driving FSD tech. As Kathy Wood of ARK Invest mentioned recently on CNBC, I think a week ago, Tesla isn't just a car company, it's an underappreciated AI play. Musk is happy to sacrifice margins now for his end game, and during the call he said FSD will have better than human driving capability by the end of this year. Investors were taking everything in with a grain of salt based on past comments regarding FSD. Regarding Netflix, the company said general ad market was soft in the past quarter. The company's revenue estimates uh, miss overshadowed the net ads and despite beating on earnings estimates. Despite the drop in the stock, the company said it expects revenue growth to accelerate in the next two quarters with plans to grow its content spend soon as the revenue acceleration proves out. Regarding the recent actor and writer strikes, the company says it, it was not where they wanted to go, but they said they're committed to getting an agreement soon. Uh, besides these two negative reactions, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSM, stock symbol, said customers are still adjusting to inventory issues. The company beat earnings expectations, but also reported contracting margins with additional pressure expected in Q3. That's not what we've been hearing from other semiconductor companies like Micron, who thinks that the bottom is already in. 
The semiconductor index took a big spill on Thursday on that news, influencing many in tech and especially in the NASDAQ. On the good side, Microsoft announced the introduction of Bing Chat Enterprise, Microsoft 365 co-pilot pricing, and an expanded AI partnership with Meta Platforms. And following that, IBM was up 2.7% following their earnings report on Thursday. In economic news, the most influential reports this week were on housing, causing housing stocks to pare back recent gains from the past couple of months. The NAHB housing market index rose slightly to 56 from 55 in July, while total housing starts declined 8% month over month. Existing home sales also declined 3.3% uh, month over month in June. The other key news was the unemployment claims, which had been trending higher this year. Uh, the recent weekly notices showed a drop of 9,000 claims down to 228,000. While elevated, it is still well off recessionary levels. June's leading economic indicators were down 0.7%. Leading economic indicators have been down for a very long time now. The regional manufacturing numbers were mixed with the Empire Survey, so that's the New York area, decelerating from 6.6 .6 down to 1.1, still in positive territory. And the Philadelphia Fed Survey checked in at a negative 13.5. We may not be seeing a recession in services, which remains strong, but it sure feels like there is one here in manufacturing. Total retail sales increased a weaker than expected 0.2% month to month. Inside the report, the control group sales, key to the GDP report, was up a solid 0.6%. Total industrial production declined half a percent month over month in June, which corroborates what we're seeing at those regional and national levels for the ISM. And recently, like I said, the Philadelphia Fed Survey and the Empire Survey, those regional surveys showing softening demand. That covers this week in the financial markets, primarily influenced by company earnings in the financials and healthcare sectors, uh, with some, some, I would say, profit-taking in tech. Uh, not a lot of movement in commodities and rates compared to last week. Economic news continued to show manufacturer weakness and a dip in recent housing activity after the big bounce a couple of months ago. Up next, this week's guest technician, Bruce Fraser. Jeff, it's a good start to the summer and obviously a very good year for investors so far. You recently did some research and pointed to just how good of a year it's been for the NASDAQ, up over 30% just in the first six months alone. So that's a stellar first half. Tell us about some of your research in terms of just how good the NASDAQ performed this year so far compared to other years we've seen throughout history. Since 71, when NASDAQ started, there was only two years that were bigger. Year to date, we're ahead of the tech bubble, but the full year, I don't know if we're going to get 50% this year, but you know, we're talking about the NASDAQ composite. The NASDAQ 100, which is what the QQQ is based on, I believe had its best first six months ever. Number one, short term, I think we'll probably have a little bit of a pause. It hasn't paused yet, but we've got technicals and market internals and sentiment and fundamentals all confirming that we're likely to kind of move sideways for the next couple of months. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. Hi, I'm Jim Poplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you 
plan your future. Well, so far, this year has turned out to be a good year for investors. Stock market's up. Most of the major indexes, especially those hit hardest, like the NASDAQ, have been this year's leaders. Where are we going to go from here? Joining us on the program from Stock Charts is Bruce Frazier. Bruce, you sent me a couple charts in you and I were talking just before we went on the air. Last time I had you on the program was in October. There was extreme pessimism at that time, and you thought we were probably at a pivot point. It's amazing because here you are again, and it looks like we're at another pivot point. Take it from there. Well, Jim, you are just the consummate market timer because you always have me on at these most interesting junctures. And it's uh, this is one of those. And actually, uh, I believe that they happen around the beginning of new quarters, beginning of the new year. And so we here we were in October of 22, and the sentiment was so pessimistic, you could just cut it with a knife. And so that, that tells you a lot about what institutions think and the public thinks, and they just were heavily in cash. And there was uh, lots of good evidence of green shoots at that time. We talked about that then. Well, now we have somewhat of the opposite situation. We have a market that's overvalued. It's reaching my point and figure count objectives on the upside on an intermediate basis, overbought. And also, uh, we continue to have the conditions that we had last year, which is we have a tight money environment with the Fed. And so I think what that does is it just gives us a lot of volatility in, in stocks, up and down. Well, I want to start out with some of the charts that you sent us, and we're going to post these on our website. So if you're listening to this program and we're talking about these charts, you can view them on the website. Let's talk about this first one. It's the annual pre-election year seasonality, second quarter in. What is this chart telling you? And we are in that presidential cycle. The third year, as I understand, Bruce tends to be a good year for the markets in an election year. So where do we go from here with that? Well, this has been such a good roadmap for 2023. And in fact, we looked at the same, not this year's seasonality, but we looked at last year's seasonality in October, and it showed an important low forming right around the end of the third quarter, which was September, October. And so here we are at the end of the second quarter. We've had three good quarters up. And now the seasonality says that we're going to go into a range-bound state into probably October, November. And range-bound, so trading range. And uh, I believe that that means that there's going to be some significant rotation in the stock market between here and there. And uh, I believe that we're already seeing that. And the rotation that I believe is happening is that the domination of performance in the first half of the year has been, as we know, the mega cap growth names, the Magnificent Seven. And those stocks are so huge that they uh, are the tail that wags the dog. And I believe that these institutions at the end of the second quarter said, we're already way overweighted in these stocks. Then they appreciated in the first half and we have to sell down our exposure at least to the level that we were at at the beginning of the year. 
and just because of the extreme appreciation. And uh, so I believe what's going to happen is institutions trimming back, not selling them, just trimming them. And I believe what's going to happen is they want to stay fully invested. That money is going to flow into other areas of the market where they consider there to be value, growth potential, dividend yield, and so on. And you can actually see this in, in a technique called the market carpet. And it's just, it shows where the performance has been over a period of time. And for the first half of the year, these very large mega caps have been just the dominant themes in this heat map or market carpet. And now you can see that the the smaller, these itty bitty little companies, which are the blue chip stocks that we know and love, which are in the S&P 500, are starting to get some love. And they're getting love from uh, these institutions, which are just pairing back and moving funds over to where they think it can work hard in the second half of the year. Bruce, I'm going to talk about something that uh, is related to what you just said, and that is, you know, the star performer this year has been the NASDAQ and, of course, the Magnificent 7 driving the S&P. But now we're starting to see the Dow take off. We're doing this interview on a Thursday. The Dow's up a couple, almost 300 points. The S&P's down. The NASDAQ's down. So is this the rotation you're talking about? Exactly right, Jim. And so we can see, if we look at the heat map for today, we see that the big mega caps are all deeply red today. And the rest of the market, all those other stocks that are in the S&P 500 are green. Their money is flowing away from these mega caps and towards these smaller companies, which are great companies. And in, uh, Every sense of the word, they're big, you know, mature companies, mature stocks, many of which are in the Dow Jones. So, yes, that's exactly what I believe is going to happen in the second half. Yeah, we're seeing like on this day, you got Johnson. Johnson is up almost 10 percent in a single day. They beat their earnings. You've got traditional stocks like IBM, Merck, Amgen. Uh, Walmart, you know, very, very blue chip. So it looks like this rotation is taking place. I want to talk about um, some of these graphs that you sent me in one in particular that everybody's been talking a lot about is inverted yield curves in recession. Now, once the yield curve inverts, it doesn't happen immediately. And I want to talk about last year, Bruce, Uh, Some people say we're going through a rolling recession because the first two quarters of last year were negative. So everybody thought we're heading into a recession. The Fed was raising 75 basis points at each meeting. And then all of a sudden, everything flipped. The economy picked up. And then, of course, the markets took off at the beginning of the year. So now the feeling is no recession and we just go up from here. But what is this uh, yield curve telling you? It looks like there could be trouble ahead. Every time going back 40 plus years, and this is a chart that that you'll post up, but this is directly from the Fed. It's a 40 plus year history. Every time the yield curve has gone negative, within about a year, the economy's gone into recession. Now, it doesn't have to be a severe recession. And so it could be a, you know, we'll commonly used term in the past was a growth slowdown. 
I actually think we're going to, by the end of the year, be in some kind of a modest recessionary state because the economy is really at stall speed now. But uh, that isn't always necessarily terribly bad for the stock market because if the Fed becomes sufficiently concerned about that, they will uh, start to become more accommodative. And so right now, they're flirting with recession and they continue to threaten to tighten. But I believe that they're just about nearly done with that. And that this negative yield curve, which we've now had for since the second quarter of 2022, is uh, really a ticking clock for recession. And so I believe that by the end of the year, we will be able to designate that as being the case. Doesn't have to be real negative, but it is probably going to be a, a you know a dip into negative territory for GDP. Now let's talk about something that central banks have not had to worry about for almost four decades, and that's inflation. Uh, we got a nine percent print. We recently got a three percent print, but I almost think that's a bottom. A lot of the lowering of inflation has come about with lower energy prices, but now we have oil ticking up. So, a couple yes. comments. Uh, let's talk about inflation and then also your take on oil. Uh, very important topics. And I believe, as you do, Jim, that inflation that we are seeing probably the best part of the inflation slowdown right now. And part of the reason is somewhat statistical because it was a year, about a year ago, that we started to see the high prints for inflation on the CPI, which was you know, around the 9% bound, an amazingly high number. And we're going to start to scrub off those high numbers. And uh, that's going to make it harder on a month-over-month -month basis and quarter-over-quarter -quarter basis to be able to show meaningful slowdown. I believe the 3% or the, the lower end, and we're above that now, that, that that is going to be a bottom for inflation for this cycle. Because, and largely because we're going to start scrubbing off very high numbers. The other thing that's happening, just a, a brief comment, uh, we're starting to see some labor strikes, UPS, yellow freight lines. Workers are organizing to get higher wages, and uh, that becomes an important component to inflation as we go forward. And as we talk about inflationary type assets, I want to move on to, you know, we talked about oil. Oil's been ticking up and we're in the camp that oil prices go higher in the second half of the year, especially as inventories tighten. But also we're starting to see uh, the precious metals break out. Silver is having a nice run here. It's over $25. Be interesting if it can break out uh, the previous high of around 2630. And then you also have gold over 2000. So what's your perception here? Well, I completely agree. And uh, I believe that gold and silver could have a good second half. But in terms of energy, I'm just, just looking at the heat map we just talked about. And it, all these magnificent sevens are all deeply red today. But the energy sector is almost all uh, positive right now. And I believe that is one of the areas that institutions are going to start to uh, rotate money towards because uh, energy has growth potential, it has yield, it has value. And I, 
I just think that, and it's generally un, still under-owned by the uh, large institutions. So uh, I believe that energy is one of the themes for the second half. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we got to, what was it, a negative print around negative $40 in 2020 when you couldn't give this stuff away. And, right. you know, just take a look. We got up to 110 and then, of course, it came down. But things are starting to tighten. And that would tell me if we start to tick up in the second part of the year, in the second half, let's say by the end of the third quarter or fourth quarter, what does the Fed do? Let's say they raise this month, which is widely expected. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of talk that maybe they might go one more, maybe September or November. But what happens, Bruce, if inflation starts to tick up as a result of energy and other factors? Mm -hmm. Which it's likely to do. And so I, I think that the idea that the Fed can get back down to 2% is a bit of a pipe dream. The thing that they're most concerned about is whether or not the uh, s people start to anticipate inflation and start to act on it. And, you know, that's the thing that they really focus on. Well, whether people start to act in a way to protect themselves against certainly rising inflation. But, and that's the reason they're trying so hard to put the economy in a recession uh, which is, um, you know, just a cr crazy, it's a crazy strategy, but it does in the interim create a slowdown in the business cycle. But I think that the Fed is really in a jam here because they've probably done all they can to get inflation down for this cycle and the economy could start to weaken it, it at the end of the year and inflation doesn't really go down with the economy. And uh, that, I think, could create a, an environment that could be very tough for the Fed to deal with. And in, in a prior time, I like to look at analogs, is the 1960s. And in the 1960s, we had early 60s, we had low stable inflation rates, we had a, a steady growth in the, that period's mega cap stocks, which were commonly referred to as the nifty 50 one decision stocks of that era, very similar to what we have going on today uh, with these magnificent seven of these mega caps. And what happened was, is that we started to have a literally a blow off in the stock market into 66 and then a bear market and then a rally into the 68 election. And that was when Richard Nixon was elected. So that was the beginning of a trading range in stocks that went on for 10 years, a full decade, it went into more than 10 years, into the early 80s. And that whole time, inflation, every cycle got worse and worse and worse. And, and there's all these stories, I lived through them, where inflation was uh, double digit. It, Interest rates for uh, treasury interest rates were like 14, 15, 16%, and uh, trying to combat this. And uh, I believe that this is the problem that the Fed faces here. And I think they're looking at the 60s analog and going, what can we do to prevent this from happening again? But the problem, the difference between now and then is inflation ramped up much faster this time 
than that time. And so I just don't think that uh, the Fed's going to have an easy time at all with this. I want to go to uh, another graph that you sent me, and that is the fear and greed index. And you you have one in the lower corner. So if our listeners are following along, you can see this on our website. It, on the lower left, it was extreme fear. That was September 29th, 2022. Right. And of course, that's when the market really bottomed. You go up to the top one now, it's extreme greed. So what would this imply? Everybody's overly bullish, which should be a warning. Well, uh, that is an easy indicator for people to be able to go look at every day. They update it every day and you just put in uh, search for CNN fear and greed and and it'll come up and it it's a terrific very easy indicator to follow and we actually looked at this very indicator when we got together in October and we were talking about how extreme the fear was at that time and how oversold the market was at that time and people will see on that slide that there is a uh, chart of the S&P 500 in that September, October period, and prices were quite low. And now we have exactly the opposite condition. So we have, uh, now it goes to 100. It's at, It hit 85 at the beginning of July, beginning of the third quarter. And currently it's in the 80s. Now it could go into the 90s. It could go as high as 100, relatively uncommon. But what it is for us is it's a warning that the stock market is, at least on a intermediate basis, is over-owned, over-loved, over-believed. And we just want to be careful because this is the exact opposite condition of what we had in September, October of 22. And uh, so it's just uh, it's, it's a reason for us to be cautious. Now, uh, one graph, it's a point and figure chart that you sent us, and you have three sectors that you highlighted, energy, industrials, and discretionary. What's the story yes. there? Well, this is really, uh, first of all, I think these are sectors of the market that can uh, do well in the second half of the year. And uh, there are, I'm showing point and figure counts, and that is a way for people, that is a, a technique for being able to estimate the potential for prices to go up for indexes, for stocks, for, in this case, sectors. And the energy sector, which at the time we put this up, that we made this July 11th, the the energy sector ETF was 83, and it has a count, just a local count that goes 94 to 97. So that could be a place, and it's starting to go up. So that could be a place where there could be outperformance in the second half. The industrial sector I find fascinating because uh, all of a sudden there's all this interest in the industrial stocks, and they are starting to break out to new recovery highs, great relative strength characteristics, and they count Currently at 108, they count as high as 128 to 130 on a local uh, basis. And so that could be another theme for the second half. I really like consumer discretionary. Now, this says that the consumer is healthier than people think. 
And because the discretionary sector is uh, consumer stocks that people can own on, such as automobiles, washing machines, uh, cruise lines, airlines, these, these are discretionary purchases that people can make. And those stocks are still are going up and are currently leadership. And I think they can continue to be leadership in the second half of the year. And I think that chart says that the consumer is uh, healthier than we know. And I believe that's there's two reasons for that. Three, really. I think that the banking crisis, the regional banking crisis, actually caused the Fed and the Treasury to reliquify the system. And that uh, caused them to turn into a more accommodative position, even though they continue to have a restrictive interest rate policy that they were pumping high-powered liquidity into the system because of the banks. The other thing is, is inflation came way, way back down, which put money back into consumers' pockets. And also the inflation rate moderating. So all of those things were beneficial to uh, consumers in the uh, uh, here in the first half of the year. So given what we're seeing right now, as on the day we're speaking, the Dow's up, the S&P and the NASDAQ are down. Some of these big cap stocks are starting to break, or as you pointed out, maybe people are trimming back. Sectors that are starting to pick up, we've got drug stocks uh, going up today. In fact, one of the biggest movers in the Dow is Johnson & Johnson, up almost 10% today. You've got discretionary stocks, industrials, and energy. Is that the way you would play it? Yeah, I really like the way that healthcare is starting to uh, come alive. It's been very dormant, out of favor, and all of a sudden I'm seeing good things happening in the healthcare sector. And of course, J&J is one of the most important stocks there among others. And so uh, healthcare is a place that I would definitely look. The other place that I, I think is very good for the economy is the financials are starting to uh, come alive. And I really like the way that the big banks are acting. So uh, Bank of America just had a really good earnings report, and it's been acting well as a result of that. And also uh, Wells Fargo uh, has been acting well, among others. J.P. Morgan is uh, making new recovery highs. So uh, I believe that those are all interesting areas, and they all are really a way from that uh, super growth theme that has been so dominant. So there, I think, is where the rotation is really taking place. Also, I'm seeing some green shoots in the material sector. We're watching commodities really closely, especially the metals and energy. Bruce, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners about stock charts? Uh, you have one uh, page on stock charts, which I love. It's called the Market Summary. And it is my go-to in the morning. I can literally go around the world, look at every stock market, interest rates, commodities, cryptocurrencies, emerging markets, everything you can think of, bond rates, all on one page. Stockcharts.com is just a great tool. And uh, it's a great tool for a lot of financial professionals use it, but it's also just a great tool for individuals 
And uh, it, it just does about anything you need it to do. And it's really one of the great bargains out there, I think. And right now, Stock Charts is doing a summer special. And so I am a contributor for Stock Charts. My uh, longtime uh, mentor and a very close friend of 40 years, Martin Pring, is a big contributor for Stock Charts. And there's lots of good thinkers there. And uh, in addition to really good tools like charting tools, and as you said, the uh, the the overview where you can organize your home screen the way you want it and you can put up like me i have the sectors i want to see what's performing to underperforming in the sectors every day i can see other really important stocks that are having really good daily momentum and things like that you can organize that any way you want so i love stock charts it's a great tool and i'm just thrilled to be a one of their contributors. All right. The name of the program is stockcharts.com. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Always interesting. I guess I'll have to look for another pivot point to have you back. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I always know that when we we organize a call together that I should really uh, pay attention because Jim is seeing something he wants to talk about and that it's important. So I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, great talking with you. Have a great rest of the summer and come back again. You can actually identify, just like you can identify in a genetic sequencing of a a microorganism, you can identify the specific linguistic changes that are altered in highly effective narratives. So there's this effort and it's an effort at scale. And it's combined with access. It's combined with the fact that We all now willingly carry around with us 24 hours a day. We keep it by our beds while we sleep. This device that delivers (laughs) the weaponized viruses to us, that's gain of function. That's trying to, again, focus on the biological foundation here, focus on not just the similarity, but the actual equivalence of gain of function research and efforts on a virus with gain-of-function research and efforts on a narrative. If you want to listen to this full interview, go to financialsense.com and click the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero-interest-rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, the Fed will be meeting this month where it's widely expected they'll raise interest rates another quarter of a point. So is it one and done or are the markets in for more interest hike fun? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Danielle DiMartino Booth from QI Research. 
Danielle, let's begin with the Fed. It's expected a quarter of a point hike coming this month, but the markets are saying, well, maybe this is it, one and done. But Danielle, what happens if, let's say, inflation starts to kick up in the latter part of the year? What does that mean? Well, now there are a lot of folks out there who are talking up the idea of base effects and how the math starts to work away from inflation in the coming months, starting with the July print, because last July's print was 0%. So therefore, you can tack any number on top of it you want, and it's going to look like a big leap. To them, I've got one message, and that is, we are, we're talking about it just now with my institutional clients in my Bloomberg chat room. I don't think very many people appreciate the fact that lending standards are clamping down at the same time as demand. And that is really key. Lending standards have been coming down, and I'm referring to households because household consumption, we are a 70% GDP consuming nation. And you can talk about the industrial recession or what's happening in the rest of the world all day long and on Sundays, but really what this U.S. economy keys off of is how much we spend. If there is a growing recognition that instead of the $430 billion in immediate relief that the administration was seeking for student loan debt holders, and it's just going to end up being $39 billion in the short term, then that would explain why demand as well as supply of credit is being curtailed right now in an economy that once again is 70% consumption. And if that's the case, if that's the case, Jim, we have to have a better appreciation for some of the disinflationary drivers going forward in a nation that is not just 70% consumption, but that consumption is reliant in huge ways on credit. You know, I want to talk about the stimulus that seems to be constant. I wrote a story and I was just taking a look at all the bills that have been passed. And I think, Danielle, it amounted to like $7.6 trillion. How much of this constant spending is one reason we haven't entered into recession territory. I mean, we had two negative prints in the first half of last year, but just when we thought it looked like a recession, things picked up. How much of that has to do with fiscal spending? You know, I would say that an underappreciated and extraordinary amount actually comes down to fiscal spending. There was a tremendous lack of appreciation for legislation that's been passed, let's say, for electric vehicle plants. Ford Motors announcing today, you know, I think Ford Motors is losing $3.6 billion trying to catch up to Tesla for a market that looks largely saturated, meaning electric vehicles. Americans have just said, you know what, we're no longer interested in paying up to be green because, you know, we have budgets that we're living on. We're not going to pay $10,000, $15,000 more for an electric vehicle. If this is the case, then the administration is throwing a lot of good money after bad. And you may note that in addition to that, they've started to branch out and say that there are diversity, inclusiveness, ESG strictures that are going to be attendant with a lot of these trillions of dollars that are being thrown out there and that it's going to expand out to the chemicals industry and other vertically integrated companies that feed these green initiatives. Again, this is after legislation has been passed that did not have these stipulations in them that's costing U.S. taxpayers tons of money. And yet here we sit. You know, I want to talk about something that to me is the elephant in the room. It's hard to believe, Danielle, as we're speaking, the total debt for the U.S. government is $32,542 billion. 
It's hard to believe less than a month ago, we were at $31.5 trillion. A month later, we're at $32.5 trillion. Let's talk about the debt and what this means, especially with, I think it's, you may know this better than I do, but isn't it about one third of treasury debt will be coming due in the next couple of years? So we have treasury bills that were probably issued at 10 basis points to notes issued at 50 basis points that are coming due now, and they'll be looking at four, five and a half percent. I cannot emphasize enough how important that is because we are just at the very beginning of higher cost to the country, right? Janet Yellen has barely started to sell the trillions of dollars that needs to be sold. And yet we know, as you just said, that at the peak of COVID spending, the U.S. government in a fiscal year saw $7.6 trillion in outlays over a 12-month rolling time frame. We've just put in $6.7 trillion. We're only $900,000 away from spending as much as we did when a public health emergency hit U.S. shores. In other words, if it doesn't really matter. Chatting about whether the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates again or not, it's fairly irrelevant when you're talking about a third of, call it 33, $11 trillion of debt that's going to be financed at higher interest rates. All the Fed has to do in order to make that a reality is not lower interest rates. And I think that that is the distinction that is so difficult for people to appreciate. It's why we saw Starwood walk away from a 200 some odd billion dollar skyscraper in Buckhead in Georgia today. The math is so far apart that it doesn't matter that the Federal Reserve might stop at five and a half percent. What matters is that when the building was first financed, it was financed at such a low interest rate that there's no way to make the math work to refinance it at where we are today. That same dynamic exists, but in huge form for the U.S. government. You know, it's amazing because we're seeing this also, not just in the case you just mentioned, but in San Francisco, I think it was Westfield, just walked away from a $586 million mortgage on a mall and just said, you know, we're out of here. You guys can take care of this. Uh, So we're seeing this more and more. We are. And I think we're going to see more and more of it. And this is what I'm getting at. And this is going to be happening in the background. It's not so much that there's a deposit crisis anymore. It is that the underlying collateral backing loans, loans that were made hundreds of basis points ago, multiple hundreds, you know, full percentage points ago, that is coming due to be refinanced. And you cannot, you could drive a Mack truck through where the buyer and the seller would be or where the lender and the potential refinancing entity would be. And by the way, this is something we're starting to see in companies in the corporate debt market. They're taking a cue from what they're seeing in commercial real estate. And they're saying, you know what? We're going to file chapter 11 preemptively. We're just going to get in front of this. There's no way we're refinancing all this debt at prevailing market rates. So we're just going to tuck the company into restructuring, do a bunch of layoffs and come out of it and give the creditors the haircuts that we have to give them in order to refinance what the company has in terms of debts. So this is going to be something that we're going to see for years moving forward. But guess what? The U.S. government does not have that ability. U.S. government can't turn the keys to the country back to some other entity unless it's God. It's going to have to trudge forward straight into this refinancing fire. 
You know, one thing that we're looking at is the feeling is inflation is coming down. But I looked at some of the inflation numbers, Danielle, and a lot of that has been the cost of energy. You know, we were at triple digit oil. We're now down somewhere around 75, 76. If oil starts to go back up again, as some are seeing tightening supplies, Saudi Arabia is cutting back, Russia is cutting back, and we start to see a rise in inflation again towards, let's say, the end of the third quarter, fourth quarter. What does the Fed do? Do they raise or just maybe just go on pause and not raise it anymore and just hold rates firm? I really do think that the Fed is going to hold rates firm, especially if you're talking about a scenario in which it's prices at the pump that happen to be the main driver. The Federal Reserve Chair contrived out of thin air this kind of core services uh, PCE net of shelter. And he really fabricated something out of thin air. And that particular number printed negative in the most recent month. So I think that he will see right through any kind of upside that we have in oil prices, in gas prices. You're seeing Germany, you're seeing Europe fall into a deeper, quicker recession than the United States. The reopening impulse from China has certainly not been what was trumped up at the beginning of the year. It's definitely not lived up to the hype. So on a global level, your demand for oil is simply not what it was thought to be going into 2023. So outside of Americans pushing that demand for oil up, I don't see it happening. And to get into the weeds, your average working American right now is flashing a big white flag saying we cannot afford to live. Wealthier Americans, they're still living off of some fiscal spending, fiscal stimulus, sadly. And believe it or not, the employee retention credit is just enormous. It just came through a record month in June of nearly $29 billion given to the wealthy in one month. Mm. Outside of this highest income earner who is basically committing fraud in order to get these employee retention credits because the pandemic disruption to their business has long since come and gone. But beyond that, you are actually seeing American households saying, we're not spending as much as we used to on food. Forget from when you and I were kids and you used to read about the hamburger helper substitution effect. They're just not buying meat in any form. Well, I can't believe the one, I guess, thing that kind of strikes me, though, is let's talk about the labor market. Because around here, when I go around the strip malls, the shopping centers, Danielle, I see help wanted signs from McDonald's to the grocery store to various entities, uh, retail outlets. Explain what's going on there in your opinion. Well, you know, I think that right now what you're seeing is a tug of war. I don't think that in even three months, you're going to be seeing the same number of signs. We're seeing Buy Baby Buy, for example, that's more than 100 stores. Last week, very quietly, Walgreens announced that it was closing 150 stores and distribution centers, plural. The amount of carnage in CVS is beginning to close locations as well. It's expected that Rite Aid could be filing for Chapter 11 and closing quite a few stores. The amount of carnage that we're seeing in retail in real time, it will take them a few months to close all of these stores, but it's not limited to one particular area of the country. And I think that we have to be very mindful of the moment that we're in, but also the fact that if you look at Indeed.com, openings for retail, openings for leisure and hospitality, some of the hottest sectors of the economy 12 months ago, they've absolutely collapsed and are negative. So you may be in a very particularly hot area of the country, I'm not sure, but in the aggregate, what we're seeing right now in the job market is 
just tons and tons of closings. So given where we are right now, you know, we've seen the markets take off and it's been the story of a handful of stocks. It's starting to broaden a little bit. You're seeing industrials take off. But Daniel, I can't recall, at least it's been a long time for me and probably for you, that we've seen treasury yields. And I'm talking about safe type investments in the five and a half or over 5% range. Well, look, my 76-year-old mother is sitting happy. She didn't know what to do with herself. Anybody is. You know what? My 15-year-old is. I'm like, buddy, on July 26th, we're going to lock you in with a CD that's got a 6% handle on it. This is halcyon days for people who actually have cash. It's a great thing. It's terrible for Uncle Sam, but it's a great thing for people who are sitting on dry powder because they don't have to play Russian roulette in the junk bond market or in even in the stock market. They don't have to own those seven stocks. I put air quotes in them, those seven stocks. They don't have to go to the casino. They can make 6% on their money in a matter of days. Lock it in, sleep well at night, and witness the miracle of compound interest. Who wouldn't want to see that? Not a bad place to hide. So as we close, in from your perspective, where do you think we go from here in terms of what the Fed may end up doing? I think uh, you and I think that they'll probably maybe just maybe one more time. And if it does kick up, just hold rates firm. What would you be doing here besides T-bills? I would certainly be mindful of still holding on to your precious metals at this juncture. And I would be largely in cash. I really would be. I think that the Fed is going to raise rates one more time. What people don't appreciate is the focus on the balance sheet. It's going to continue shrinking month after month after month. That is its own form of tightening. So just because the Fed is could be finished raising interest rates by the end of July, that has nothing to do with the fact that they're not finished with their tightening campaign overall. Quantitative tightening continues to shrink the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Michael Hartnett at Bank of America, he does a great job of aggregating the effect of liquidity, even though there was so much built up in the system. Starting in the month of August, you're going to have a trillion dollars of liquidity being removed by central banks net net per month. Excuse me, what? I'm a former central banker, had issues there with some zeros, $100 billion, excuse me, in central bank liquidity on net. This includes the Bank of Japan continuing to pump money into the system but $100 billion being pulled out of the global financial system every single month starting in August. And that is a real form of tightening while interest rates are going to be kept at a high level. So this is not 2008, 2009, when the Fed comes rolling in with quantitative easing and zero interest rate policy. That's not where we are. This is not your mother's Federal Reserve. I can't say grandmother's, because back then the Federal Reserve didn't have quantitative easing in its toolbox or quantitative tightening. But this is not, this should not be equated to prior cycles when the tightening ended in the form of raising interest rates. The tightening will continue as the Fed continues to reduce the size of its balance sheet alongside its peer central banks throughout the world. At the same time, the debt will be growing parabolically. Danielle, as we close, tell our listeners about QI Research and what they're going to find there. Well, you're going to find very entertaining, edifying, and great research that has nothing to do with what the mainstream churns out on a daily basis. Please come see for yourself demartinobooth.substack.com. We've got our full array of offerings there, and I'd love to have you as a client. If you don't follow me on Twitter at demartinobooth, please do. They say it's a free MBA, so come partake, and I really appreciate your time. All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us on the program. Have a great rest of the summer. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 486 
888-789-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says contact us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.